So we're in uh, an area of Nepal, but Nepal, of course, is ethnically and linguistically extremely diverse. And um, much of the northern borderland of Nepal is populated by um, ethnically, linguistically uh, Tibetan populations. Uh, and it's precisely one of these populations, or rather a very small community in one of these areas uh, that I'm going to be talking about. Um, I'm going to be talking about a ritual for uh, the slaying of a vampire. <coughs> I saw this ritual for the first time in 1982 when I was doing my doctoral fieldwork. And not in this village, but in a, uh, one about two and a half hours walk from here. Um, I just remember it being a very spectacular ritual, and uh, it was very complex, and I didn't really know what was going on. Um, but the, uh, the background to it was this, uh, that the lady in the house where I was living um, had had a child a few years previously. Uh, the child had died of measles at the age of two. A few years later, she had another child, and that child also died at the age of two, two and a half. And while I was there, she became pregnant, and the child was born dead. And it was uh, concluded in the village, this, I'll tell you a little bit more about the village, that uh, this was the work of a vampire. And uh, a subjugation had to be carried out. So the ritual was uh, performed while she was pregnant. And it was extremely spectacular. And it was straight out of Dennis Wheatley, as far as I could tell, involving skulls of animals and trigrams and um, uh, stars and uh, pits in the ground and so on. So you know, it's not the kind of philosophical, liturgical thing that one tends to associate with uh, Tibet. Um, more recently, um, I started to work on these, uh, rit this category of rituals again. These apotropaic, exorcistic rituals belong to a certain uh, category, rather low down in the hierarchy of rituals that are performed by Buddhists and the followers of the alternative Tibetan religion, which is mainly what I'm talking about, the Pern religion. Um, to all intents and purposes, the two are pretty much interchangeable, at least for the purposes of uh, today. Uh, rituals, of course, are extremely complicated, but I'm going to try and spare you all but uh, the necessary uh, detail. It will, however, I'm afraid, be a rather ethnographic uh, paper. However, I will try to um, align it with some more general anthropological considerations. So the community in question, again, not the one we're looking at, but the one behind my back, so to speak, um, is, or rather behind your back, I suppose, um, is a community, a very small community, of all hereditary priests of the Pan religion. Uh, these are not monks. This is a type of priesthood that goes in the, main, in the male line. So they are literate, uh, and they work mainly as client priests for neighboring communities. Uh, uh, communities will call them up to say, you know, please, you know, we seem to have a trouble with some type of ghost or, or something. Can you come and deal with it? Or they'll uh, perform annual fertility rites for the communities in question. Anyway, I started to work on this corpus of rituals uh, that uh, is performed by one of the priests in this community. There are about 80 rituals in a volume uh, of around 900 folios. And I started to uh, read some of these during my last sabbatical, and I wanted to see how they were performed. So I was going back to the village and filming performances of the rituals, and I was very curious to see when the priest might uh, once again perform one of these vampire-slaying rituals. Um, <clears throat> and he said that he didn't do it anymore. I said, what do you mean you don't do it anymore? There's vampires all over the place. People had always you know, told me about vampires. I said, well, I don't do it. I said, why not? He said, it's bad. Um, so come on, uh, why is it bad? So he came up with some um, 
not very credible explanations uh, about why it was bad, but it was very clear that he didn't want to do them anymore. He'd become extremely ambivalent about the whole thing in the intervening 25 years or whatever. Uh, I repeat that there was no lack of demand for this. Uh, the reluctance was entirely on his part. <clears throat> um, what I want to do in this paper is to make a very tentative suggestion about why this reluctance might have come about. There are obvious reasons, and there are less obvious reasons, and of course I'm going to go for the less obvious reasons, um, and I'm not 100% entire... convinced by my own argument, but uh, I'll put it out there. Let's say it may not be a cause, but I think it's a significant uh, correlation. So eventually, a couple of years ago, uh, this Lama's wife's brother died. And uh, it was concluded that uh, his death was indicative of the presence of a vampire. Uh, the widow was pressing uh, the Lama to perform the ritual, and uh, the general consensus in that community, which is the one we are looking at, was that this was the work of a vampire. Okay. So, eventually, after two years of shuffling his feet, he eventually acquiesced. So, uh, here he is uh, with the widow, um, his uh, brother-in-law's widow, uh, and the, uh, let me just say a few words about uh, the term vampire. The Tibetan word for I'm going to try and avoid the use of Tibetan terms as much as possible. The term vampire for this category, which is pronounced either si or shi, uh, was coined by a British Tibetologist called <coughs> David Snellgrove uh, back in the 1960s or 70s. And I think it's a very appropriate term. You can tell the kind of demon that's at work in a Tibetan uh, community by the, uh, by the symptoms. So, for example, you can tell... Well, most of these things are invisible, but you can tell the effects they have. So serpent spirits cause, uh, cause skin disease. Uh, the Zha spirits, which are uh, the uh, planetary uh, demons, uh, they cause um, strokes and paralysis. And the Dun demons cause insanity. So as soon as somebody starts to manifest these symptoms, then you, it's a pretty safe bet that one of these demons is involved. Uh, she vampires are responsible for serial killings. And they kill certain categories of, um, uh, of entities. There are nine categories. This is all thoroughly described in the literature. There are nine categories, and the most dangerous and prolific are those that kill babies. And indeed, the word she is a word meaning baby. So the whole concept is quite terrifying. Um, there is also another category of people who are killed, and those uh, it's a serial death in uh, young and middle manhood. And that was the case with the widow's wife. She was actually not too distressed that the man had died. Uh, he was a terrible, violent alcoholic uh, who got um, hepatitis but kept drinking and uh, eventually uh, was no longer able to beat her up. But um, she uh, locked him in his room and he eventually died. So everybody was uh, rather... <laughs> relieved about this, but the point was that it was the third death in a sequence. His uh, younger brother had died uh, the previous year, and his older brother's son had died uh, two years before that. So better get rid of the, uh, the vampire. So uh, I think that's all we need to know by way of background. Um, okay. So what I'm going to do is to talk you through the, uh, the ritual, you know, what happens, and uh, read two excerpts from uh, the text, because that's actually quite relevant to the understanding of it. So there's um, 
a very rich set of ingredients uh, that go into this uh, this ritual. First of all, uh, since this uh, vampire is invisible, it has to be embodied. So that's my concession to the theme of this uh, series. I think it has to do with bodies. Okay, so it has to be embodied. And there are two um, physical embodiments of it. One is this print of paper you see here, which is used very widely in exorcistic rituals. It's called a linga, obviously a Sanskrit term, which has come into Tibetan to mean something else. And it can be the embodiment of any category of demon, which is then treated horribly, you know, burned, whatever. Um, so here is the Lama preparing it. And the ingredients uh, require for the whole ritual, well, actually, specifically for the, the paper, linga, poisonous paper, it says, uh, half a cubit in height, a pen, a wooden or bamboo pen, that has been made from an arrow that has been used to kill a wild man, which could also translate as yeti. Uh, the ink is made from the blood of a bear that has been killed with a sword. Uh, three types of blood. The blood of a bear that has been killed with a sword, a mule that has died from poisoning, and blood from a mad dog. Um, he admitted that it was quite difficult to get hold of these things, um, but that it was permissible to use substitutes in certain circumstances. So, in fact, what he's using there is the heart blood of a yak to paint this, uh, this effigy with. It's a block print, uh, which is then painted over with red. And then, in addition to this, for certain categories, you need skulls. Uh, so, ideally, you have a tiger, a yak, and a wolf skull, a monkey, goat, and dog skull, and bird, weasel, and rat, nine and all. And uh, the subjugation, the text says, should be done together with the jaw. Um, for this particular category of ritual, we didn't need a skull. Um, just a dog skull and a weasel skull would have done, which is how I saw it performed the previous time. Uh, but you do need uh, a yak's horn in which to um, imprison uh, the vampire before burying it. Um, the subjugation done with the jaw, draw a crossed thunderbolt on the forepart of the skull and a cross of swastikas on the occiput. And uh, the text very helpfully gives a little illustration of what this should look like. Okay, so you have the cross thunderbolt, trigrams, uh, various inscriptions into that, and there's this cross of uh, reverse swastikas. There's the detail of it. And this is um, the embodiment of the vampire. Um, the base for the ritual is this thing over here. It's uh, a six-pointed star uh, sitting in a circle of nine assistant vampires. Um, and then there's a second embodiment, which is this uh, doe effigy. So he makes the doe effigy of the vampire. It's imprisoned within a triangular pit. All this is fairly standard stuff in South Asian exorcistic rituals. Uh, and the belly of this creature is turned into a candle. Yeah, well, uh, uh, what would you say, a butter lamp. And molten butter is poured into it, uh, red molten butter to symbolize uh, the blood inside the vampire. And then there's um, a circle of, should be 18, but uh, I think I counted something different, um, 18 sticks representing a, a poisonous palisade. It's actually berberous wood. And then there's a lid representing Mount Sumeru, which is plumped on top of the whole thing at the end of the ritual. Okay, so... Uh, these are the two embodiments of the vampire. And then the final effigy, the main effigy, there are lots of other things going on on the altar, but they're not too relevant to us now. Yeah, so this is the, the finished product over here. Uh, things to note, 
these are the nine assistant vampires, these crosses of Berberis wood. Uh, there are pieces of stone that have to come from an avalanche. They can't be just any stone. Uh, the triangular pit with both the effigies inside, the three-dimensional one and also the paper print, wrapped around with colored thread, quite important, and two feathers, one of them uh, from an owl and one from a crow, because owls and crows fight, and this is a conflictual ritual, so it represents conflict. And then at the top, there's an effigy that I'll have a little bit more to say about uh, a little bit more to say about later on, uh, propped, on uh, propped up on top of uh, three arrows. And there's his text over there and some stones that he then throws around the room to rid it of uh, spirits. Okay. Lama himself, called Sultim. Uh, the other ingredient that's essential is uh, the horn of a yak. So go out, find a dead yak, uh, knock the bone out of the inside of the, uh, the, the horn, and get it ready. Then also go to the middle of the, the main street and dig a hole in it. Uh, a triangular pit at a crossroads. This is all in the main street. Nobody seems to bat an eye at it. Um, and then he has this uh, the folded image, again held in Berberis wood, and the ritual begins. Now, these rituals have a rather particular structure. Uh, they're not Here, Bonpo rituals tend to differ from Buddhist rituals. They begin with the recitation of a myth, and to this extent, they're not dissimilar, and this point is an important one, they're not dissimilar to the kinds of rituals that you find amongst some um, Tibeto-Burman-speaking shamanic uh, populations in the middle hills of uh, Nepal. So, in other words, the immediate neighbors. In this kind of ritual, typically, uh, the origins of in this case, vampires, are related, uh, the story of uh, the original conflict, how it was resolved, and so forth. And then that, um, uh, what should we say, archetypal picture is somehow grafted onto the particular situation uh, that's going on uh, in the world. And so he begins his liturgy, and here I'm going to read you um, an excerpt uh, with a lot of abbreviations, because it's, it's a very long thing, um, uh, from this, uh, this liturgy. So it begins with a description of hell, you know, boiling and bubbling and acid fumes and so forth. And it says, in a place such as this was the father of the vampire, named Yakshakartikar. And the mother of the she, uh, the vampire, was named Locast Poison Lips. The mother prayed for a daughter, and she bore a daughter, a vampire, an ill-omened daughter with upper teeth, teeth that had grown while she was still in her mother's belly. The father was enraged and flung her into a pit of ashes. Her mother looked after her. The father gave her a name, Ash-Coloured Girl Who Was Buried. The mother gave her a name, Black Raging Woman, Risen Corpse. Her brother gave her a name, Lovely Uncared-For Girl. When she reached the age of nine, she said, I shall go to the land of the humans. So she disguised herself as a young woman, wearing silken robe and jewellery, and she set off. The hero of the Bon religion is somebody called Shenrab. I have to introduce him at this point. Um, he is similar, according to his biographies, in many, way, in many ways to the historical Buddha, uh, because the biographies are unquestionably related. But he also has certain very distinctive features. And in this kind of literature, he doesn't really have that transcendent Buddha quality that you find in the later texts. Uh, it's something more of... Uh, a swashbuckling adventurer who goes out to right the wrongs in the world, very often by violence. Shenrab was travelling down to the realm of the demons. He too had disguised himself as a young man with a golden crown, riding a white horse. 
They met on a narrow trail at the edge of the boiling poison lake of the demon realm and the black demon crag. All this is being sung, according to a, a litany. They didn't recognize each other, and she asked him who he was and where he was going and what his clan was. He asked her who she was and where she was going and what her clan was. He doesn't tell her, you see. I'm going to the world of humans to slaughter a hundred men, she says. I'm going to steal the children of a hundred women, and I'm going to snatch the souls of a hundred children. I'm going to bring harm to all humans. And then he reveals his identity, and he says, well, actually, I'm going to the realm of the demons from which you've just come, and I'm going to kill all the males, and I'm going to capture and enslave all the females, and I'm going to eat all their children. And I'm not going to spare you either. And he seizes her by her lapels and he grabs his dagger and he's about to stick his knife into her. And then she starts begging for her life and says, oh, I won't kill you. Um, uh, sorry, uh, I, I promise not to go and, and harm human beings. And he says, OK, I won't kill you. There are details here which I'm intentionally leaving out, which I'll come back to later. He says, from your clan, I recognize you as my maternal aunt. I'm actually your sister's son, he says unheard of in Tibetan ritual texts, but anyway, we'll move on. Um, the term for maternal aunt, I'm going to introduce just two terms at this time. This is mother's sister, spelt in several different ways, but this will do. And uh, sister's son is this. So it's shu or shu and ten. Okay. The narrative goes on. Let us swear an oath, he says, with the divinity called Takla as our witness. If ever in the distant future there is a time when the need arises, if I call, you must come more readily than a dog comes when it is called. If I seize you, be more malleable than sheep butter. If I lift you, may you be lighter than wool. If I tread you down, be more treadable than the earth. Do not renege on your oath, eating it as you eat food. I and you have a special uh, promise or bond. Should the time come when I need you, you must come without hesitation. So he spoke, and the aunt and nephew who had established this promise went their separate ways. That is why the vampires are constant, and why, if you call them, they come. Now, very important in any oath is the witness, uh, because the witness ensures the efficacy of the oath. And in this little ritual structure we have here, the thing sitting right on top is the original witness. Okay, so it has to be made and put on top, and when, as he is about to, summon the vampire from the depths, she must come because the witness is present. Um, didn't help matters when I was craning over this to see which page he was on, and I knocked the whole thing over. Uh, and uh, it fell straight into his mug of beer, which then fell over and knocked over his mug of tea and went all over the, the effigy. It was a catastrophe, but anyway, they're used to me by now. So there it is. Wiped it down. Doesn't really matter, he said. Okay. So this is where the... Oh, sorry, we missed a bit here. Yeah. So now phase two of this, uh, of this thing starts. Um, it's not exactly continuous with the first part of the ritual, but it's important. Ch scene changes. In a land called Miulkiting, there was a king and a queen. They had a daughter who married a prince. After one year had passed, a son was born. She had a dream, and she dreamed that her mother came. I shall be the nursemaid of your child, says the mother. And she dreamed that the mother took her daughter with her, or took her child with her, and left. The child was not reared into child... In, sorry, the baby was not reared into childhood. It died in infancy. It did not ripen into barley, but withered as green grain. It didn't become a bird, for the egg was broken. It didn't become a fruit, 
but died dried in the summer. And this dream is repeated a further eight times, so nine times in all, with a different category of kinswoman uh, of the princess. So the second time it's her elder sister, the third time it's her younger sister. On each, in each case, they go off with the child, starve it to death. After nine times, um, she gets a bit annoyed by this and uh, begins to rage and calls upon uh, the Lama to help her, uh, to get rid of these nine female relatives who are vampires. They've um, depleted the life of, their, of her children. So the narrative goes on. The, uh, it says uh, the priest must now uh, say at this point, and this is what the priest actually says. Ho, oh, vampire, because remember he has the original pact with the, 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 the vampire who's now back down in hell, but the deal is that whenever he calls her, she must come to help. Vampire, come here, here to this place to which you're invited. Subdue these vampires and dispel these obstacles. Uncared for one, my aunt, listen to me. The time has come when I need you. Don't sleep, aunt, but rise up. Are you not sad down there in the darkness? Uh, cross the nine passes, listening to the rumble of the thunder in the sky, and come. Come into the shelter of this five-colored rainbow. Come under these gathering clouds. Come and sleep in this conch shell house. Come eat this buttered flour. Come and drink this buttered beer from the ladle. Come chew and munch on this meat. Come and open this egg that has no opening. Come singing and dancing. Come and chat as aunt and nephew chat. Come and honor the words of our original promise. The story goes on. The demoness, the, the vampire, is uh, down in hell, and she hears uh, this uh, litany, and she has a dream that she is doing precisely this. She's sleeping inside a conch shell house. She's uh, uh, drinking wonderful things, meeting friends. She's very lonely. <coughs> and uh, so she wakes up, and then she leaves hell, and on the way she meets her mother. And she tells her mother the wonderful dream she's had and says, I'm going to the realm of the humans. And the mother says, oh, you idiot, don't you realize you never listen to me? Um, you've been tricked. Uh, the thundering of that great dragon in the sky is the priest's drum. Sleeping inside a conch shell house was you sleeping in the pale skull of a dog. Sleeping beneath a dark cloud was you being wrapped up in a black goat hair sack. The rainbow colors that swirled about your body, that was you being bound with the wool of five colors. Eating buttered flour, boiled in butter, that was you eating your own flesh. Drinking buttered beer, that was you drinking your own blood. Chewing, crunching, that was you gnawing your own bones. Drinking the soup, that was your intestines being twisted and torn into pieces. Looking for the egg that has no opening, that was you tearing open your own heart. That dis delightful singing and dancing, that was the enticement of your deceivers. My daughter, that was not a good dream, that was a terrible dream. Rather than you should flee, uh, rather you should flee. Rather than fleeing, you should hide. But of course, there's no hiding place because the Lama has set himself up with these effigies of the skulls, which can go to any of the environments in which the vampire tries to hide. So the skull of a yak for the pasturelands, the skull of a tiger for the forest, and so forth. No hiding place, and she is caught. So this is being summoned up. You summon vampires up by closing all the doors and whistling, as you summon any ghosts. And once she's in the house, then she's imprisoned. She's imprisoned in here with uh, cards of four ferocious protectors, uh, sort of policemen, as he said, uh, around her to stop her getting out. Uh, and then he produces his ritual implement, this long dagger, which you can't really see, uh, to prepare to kill her. And the first thing to be killed is this effigy, which has the, the life flame coming out of its belly. 
So this is her lying there, now embodied by the original vampire, and he stabs at her with the, uh, the dagger several times as he chants his litany and puts out her lights. Uh, the next thing to be killed is this embodiment, uh, the triangular um, piece of paper with the imprint on it, surrounded by what she thought was uh, this lovely light of rainbows, but is actually the chains that bind her. And uh, the son-in-law of the house is called up. I don't think that's significant, by the way, in the present case. Uh, he is called up to um, kill this version. So he puts on all his finery, gets his bows and arrow, bow and arrows, and um, shoots her at point-blank range. Not a chance. <laughs> and then, as if that were not enough, he whacks her with the back of an axe uh, several times. And then she is stuffed into the horn of the yak, held by a monk. So everything here, all the relevant stuff, um, the effigy uh, and so forth, but not the feathers, the llama keeps those, they're quite useful. Um, everything is stuffed into the horn, um, wrapped up with the black goat hair sack, as her mother predicted, uh, and then sealed with sealing wax. So everybody in the house puts his or her seal on it, including, finally, the llama. And then uh, a, uh, an indigent neighbor is brought in to drag her around the floor in the four directions and stamp on her while she's in this prison, beat her on the floor a bit. And then she's taken outside. There's an anti-clockwise dance performed around this pit, and eventually the llama drops it in. And the basket of other stuff is immediately... Uh, thrown into the hole. Uh, the hole is then beaten down with rocks, uh, very hard, covered over again, and a fire lit on top of it. And that's the end of the vampire. Okay, So that's the ritual in brief. The whole thing lasts about two days. Um, uh, the, uh, the liturgies are very long, and the, the ritual is a bit more complicated. Okay. Why, is he, why does he want to abandon this ritual? What is his problem with this ritual? He gave me two reasons. The first one, he said, is that it's sinful to dig holes in the ground. Why didn't I find that persuasive? Um, he said, well, first of all, um, it can only be done in winter because it's less sinful to do it in winter. Because uh, they observe these rather ancient monkish um, precepts that uh, if monks dig the fields, then they're likely to kill animals. Um, little animals, especially in summer. In winter, however, nothing is moving, so you can dig a hole in the ground without harming a worm. That's the reasoning. Why don't I believe that? Because, uh, first of all, he himself plows his own fields, so that's a bit un unconvincing. Uh, secondly, here's a ritual that's being carried out in summer, erecting prayer flags, something that's done uh, every year. So the prayer flags are put on the prayer flag poles, uh, they're put next to the houses, and how are they held up? Dig a hole in the ground. Okay? So it's the same llama who's doing it, in fact. Uh, so we eliminate that as a plausible explanation. Um, the second explanation, he said, is that it's very sinful to kill the vampire. This is slightly more plausible. Uh, there is, generally speaking, um, a bodlerizing of Tibetan rituals uh, since uh, the Tibetans have come into exile uh, in 1959. Uh, really, to be oh dear, sorry, it's, this is checking for should work. Um, there is this um, feeling that quite a lot of, w of what went on in Tibet was 
really not presentable uh, to the international world. You know, things involving sacrifice, for instance. So much better show the outside world, uh, the outside world a rather cleaned up, uh, respectable version of Buddhism and uh, pretend that the rest ever happened. Uh, and these categories of uh, rituals, uh, this kind of violence, this um, you know, something that frankly does resemble black magic, um, is not a very good thing for lamas to be seen doing. So there has been a certain amount of missionary activity in this area from exile lamas who are now remissionizing the northern parts of Nepal, uh, introducing new forms of monasticism and um, uh, looking askance on certain types of ritual. So most communities that used to perform animal sacrifice in the past no, now no longer do so. But um, rituals of this, uh, this sort, uh, these violent exorcistic rituals, are still going on. Now this is not just... Uh, a modern phenomenon. Uh, in the early days of late tantrism, this is this particular, uh, particularly, what should we say, violent, picturesque form of Buddhism that developed in the ninth century. In the very early days, the kinds of rituals that were being done were extremely spectacular. Uh, for example, in one of the earliest, known as the Chatush Pita, uh, there was um, the possibility of invoking these uh, uh, divinities, these goddesses, to help you to achieve what you wanted to, and if they failed you, there were rituals for murdering them. Right? Um, and the later forms of the ritual, much more sweetness and light, less murder going on. So that's uh, possible. Why don't I think it works in this case? Because rituals of this sort involving the destruction of um, vampire-like demons are still very common, and the lamas still do them. So here, um, the main ritual for these priests on their altar, there is precisely one of these effigies. And in this case, it's the masked dancers, who include the lama we've just seen, uh, prepare themselves to put out its lights. And here, they're doing exactly that. Okay, So this is being killed, done systematically. In the course of the same ritual, uh, this is done in summer, another of these effigies, also painted with uh, yak blood, being held in a cleft stick, being destroyed in another way. Okay, This time, with a ritual fire hold it over a fire, stoke up the fire, and the thing is uh, incinerated there, not there anymore. And as if that weren't enough, you can also shoot them with bows and arrows. So here's a third one um, being pierced with uh, an arrow. So again, that doesn't quite work, I think. There must be something else going on. Let's look at the problem more generally. Um, when we look at the relationship between uh, rituals and society, it's actually far easier to find anthropological literature in which it's uh, the priests who are hanging on to ritual and uh, the secular population who really don't want to have anything more to do with it or who are changing to other forms of uh, religiosity. Um, it's, this being said, there are a number of examples to the contrary which are particularly interesting. We have, for example, the case uh, described by Geertz of a failed ritual in Java, a funeral ritual in which the expectations of the laity were quite at odds with the expectations and performance of the priesthood. So the funeral in question was seen not to have worked. Um, perhaps the nicest one that I know of in this category is um, the description by Mary Douglas um, of uh, the problem of Friday abstinence in the Catholic population in London. We're talking about the 1960s here. Uh, as she says, they adhere to it, they confess its breach uh, with contrition and take it seriously. 
On the other hand, it's not very highly regarded by the clergy. In their eyes, the avoidance of meat on Fridays is an empty ritual, irrelevant to true religion. In this argument, the anti-ritualists are the clergy, and the ritualists, a type known patronizingly, as she says, as the bog Irish. Bog Irishism, she says, seems to be a highly magical, irrational, non-verbal culture, mainly found in London. And when she asks her clerical friends why uh, these new forms are considered to be superior, uh, she says she is answered by a tail-hardest evolutionism, a reference to the, what do you say, the proto-New Age Jesuit, uh, Taylor de Chardin, uh, Tylardist evolutionism, which assumes that a rational, verbally explicit personal commitment to God is self-evidently more evolved and better than its alleged uh, contrary formal ritualistic conformity. Have we got something like that here? Um, I think it's a little more subtle than that. Oops. In this book, Natural Symbols, Mary Douglas uh, develops the idea of a, I'm sure you know, uh, the idea of a consonance between social conformity and ritual via the work of um, Bernstein or Bernstein and um, goes into the matter of how different speech codes uh, create for their speakers different orders of relevance and relation. There are two kinds of codes according to Bernstein, the elaborated code and the restricted code. The elaborated code entails the speaker selecting from a wide range of uh, syntactic alternatives uh, and is a kind of speech that requires complex planning. The other kind of code, the restricted uh, code, involves uh, drawing from a much narrower range of syntactic alternatives, and these alternatives are more rigidly organized. She even proposes that ritual is a form of restricted code. So these codes, the restricted codes, are deeply enmeshed in the immediate social, social structure, uh, and utterances have a dual purpose. On the one hand, yes, they do convey information, but on the other hand, they express the social structure and embellish and reinforce it. So that's uh, her proposal for an area of conformity between ritual and language on the one hand and uh, the social order on the other. Uh, she also follows Bernstein in maintaining that these speech codes can be mo modified by changes in the social structure. Now, as a pertinent example, I think this is probably worth exploring, this particular line. Something is going on here uh, that entails a dissonance between the understanding on the part of the priest and the understanding on the part of the lay community. This priest is not an intellectual <coughs> snob, that's for sure, but he knows something about the ritual that the others don't. And the something that he knows has something to do with the social order. That's the hypothesis. One form of restricted linguistic code, I suppose, could be kinship terminology. So I'm going to make a brief excursus into that and then come back to the ritual. I know this seems a little bit like pulp fiction. You know, you thought it was going in one direction and now it's going somewhere else. I'm sorry. Um, now, here I'm going to de um, depend very substantially on the pioneering work that was done by Nick Allen, mainly his studies in... Uh, um, diachronic kinship terminology among the Sherpas, Man, 1976, although there are other articles besides. Um, and clearly there's not a great deal of time to go into all the evidence, uh, so it's going to be a very brief and um, uh, sadly unrepresentative um, summary. The terminology in question, and we're talking about Bodish terminology, that is to say, uh, generally speaking, Tibetan, uh, was prescriptive. 
That means that it pre the built into the terminolo terminology is the presupposition that marriage uh, with a category of relatives is the ideal. And it is symmetrical in that it equates wives' relatives with husbands and matrilateral cross-cousins with patri patrilateral. I'm going to repeat that and I'm going to illustrate it. So um, it's prescriptive. It's symmetrical prescriptive. Symmetrical because it presupposed, in that it presupposed marriage with a category of relatives and symmetrical in that it equated wives' relatives with husbands and matrilateral cross-cousins with patril patrilateral. That's me, Green. M is mother. Okay. Let's go through this quickly. I'm sure most of you know this, but if you don't, let's have a little reminder. F for father. Z for sister. W for wife. WB, wife's brother. MB, mother's brother. So this is my maternal uncle. F said, father's sister. FZH, father's sister's husband. MBW, mother's brother's wife. Okay, they are the same in this system. Yeah? It's a system implying direct exchange, symmetrical prescriptive. This is also my wife's father, and that is also my wife's mother. So logically, if this system works, one would assume that there's only one term for each of these two categories. <coughs> and indeed, in the kinship terminology, Bodish, but certainly in much of the Himalayan region, and certainly in the area we're talking about, in Mustang, there is one term indeed, which uh, designates mother's brother, father's sister's husband, and wife's father, and this is Asham. And on the other side, uh, I'm going to modify this, but let's say in most um, Tibeto, uh, Tibetan communities in the Himalayas, with certain notable exceptions, uh, Ani is father's sister, mother's brother's wife, and wife's mother. Okay. The person I'm married to then is my mother's brother's daughter, but she's also my father's sister's daughter. Okay. There happens to be no primary term for that, at least not in Tibetan. But there are in Tibeto-Burman languages. We leave that discussion aside. It is interesting, but we haven't got the time. Now, <clears throat> uh, looking at a distillation of this, uh, that's me. This time I'm red. And my uh, father's sister and my mother's brother's wife are usually known as Annie. Okay? Now, as Nick suggests, in changing from a bio what he's talking about is changes in prescriptive marriage terminologies. In changing from a bilateral prescriptive marriage rule to a negative marriage rule, that is to say, um, it's not built into the terminology who you can marry, but it is built in who you can't marry, uh, people might or might not go through a period when they followed a unilateral marriage rule. That is to say, uh, you marry people on one side, but not on the other. It's no longer symmetrical. He's talking mainly about the Sherpas, who don't have any prescriptive marriage rule. In fact, to marry your mother's brother's daughter or your father's sister's daughter is regarded as incest among the Sherpas, as indeed it is among Tibetans and in most of the populations of North India. And that's very significant. Right? Um, 
what seems to be the case, even though the Sherpas don't have uh, a unilateral marriage rule, is that the terminology has some important asymmetrical features. Okay, and let's take a look at some examples. Uh, leave the Sherpas on the side just for a second. We're going back to Mustang now. This symmetry has been lost. I say lost because one supposes that logically mother's brother's wife was once Annie. And in this case, an external term from a neighboring population has been brought in to designate mother's brother's wife. So it's no longer symmetrical. And in the case of the Sherpas, well, uh, actually in our case, we've just seen in this ritual mother's sister is Shru. And among the Sherpas, we see that mother's brother's daughter is also Shru. This... Um, Okay, in a lot of patrilineal societies, you find that maternal cross-cousins are equated with relatives of superior levels and paternal cross-cousins equated with relatives of inferior ones. I can't draw a full diagram for this, unfortunately. So anyway, these equations are known as Omaha equations, as you probably know, where you have a term coming down from the older generation on the mother's side to designate uh, a cross-cousin. And the whole system sort of tilts around like that. The terminology uh, tilts anti-clockwise, if I can put it that way. Now, what evidence have we got for a shift uh, from um, symmetric to asymmetric in the population we're talking about in Mustang? The terminology is broadly um, symmetric, except for a few exceptions, as I just showed you. But also, you have a very clear preference for matrilateral cross-cousin marriage. Let me say, this is a, a, a very common saying. It's actually in Nepali, but much cited in the area. You don't need to cook uh, um, soup made out of dried radish heads, fermented radish heads, and you don't need to seduce your um, mother's brother's daughter. Okay? It's a pun on the word pakaunu, to cook, and pakaunu meaning to seduce. In other words, it goes without saying. You know, you don't even have to um, you know, take her out for a drink. You know, she'll, she'll be your wife anyway. <laughs> and uh, an indigenous one here, also much cited. Meaning that uh, in order to get a thumbnail full of snuff, Tibetans not snuff off the thumbnail, not off the wrist, uh, to get a thumbnail full of snuff, you have to ask 21 times. To get your mother's brother's daughter, you need only ask once. Okay? So this is a very clear popular presentation of preference uh, for marriage with um, matrilateral uh, cross-cousin. Um, the system that's implied by this structurally is uh, clan-based. Okay, and indeed, there are named clans uh, in this area where you have, because it's a, a patrilocal society, preferential matrilateral cross-cousin marriage. So you have the red clan, the women of the red clan, marrying into the men of the green clan, and the yellow women marrying the red men. So there's a movement of women, so to speak, from left to right. Movement because, generally speaking, it's... Uh, patrilocal. Very interesting exceptions, but uh, we'll leave that aside for the time being. Um, 
Okay, and this kind of marriage is actually the ideal form of marriage uh, in neighboring uh, populations, particularly uh, the population known as the Magar, which is where uh, Andasal has worked a lot, and where the mythology is based very much around this understanding of kinship relations. The terminology used here is different. Obviously, it's a different language. So um, you have uh, classically the relationship between what they call the banja, which means the from the woman's point of view, it's her mother's sister's, uh, sorry, her father's sister's son, and the mighty, which doesn't designate an individual. It refers to the parental household of the wife. Okay? So this is. I keep losing my cursor. Okay, so that's the mighty. So it's a kind of general term referring to the women one marries over the generations uh, in this clan. It's a kind of marriage that's repeated over the generations, it's, and it entails an association between clans. Um, I marry the women from that group, but in return, uh, because they are the wife-giving category, I treat them with great deference, and if they need to borrow money, they'll borrow it from me. If they need their enemies beaten up, they'll turn to me to beat them up. And So, so I'm always in a state of uh, indebtedness uh, towards uh, the group that has given my father and my grandfather wives and has given me a wife, and I hope will give my, my son a wife. That's the principle. Um, Okay. Now, in the the mythology of the the Kammagar, particularly, which is where Andersal worked, uh, the classic uh, scenario is where the the original shaman Rampuransan uh, meets the the head of the witches, and they have a bit of a joking relationship, and he and they establish that they are uh, mighty and banja, and they are in a state of enmity, but it's also um, uh, they are also marriage groups. Let's go back to this myth that we saw concerning the subjugation of the vampires, and we'll go back to the very earliest part of the myth, when uh, sorry. Yeah. when Shenrab, the hero, and the vampire meet on the narrow trail. The bit I skipped was this. When he's threatening to kill her, she says, if you don't kill or harm my relatives, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. I shan't disobey your orders. I shan't go to the realm of the humans, and you don't go down to the realm of the demons. So said the vampire. Then Shenrab returned his dagger to its sheath and bestowed the blessing of the witness and said, listen to me, lovely girl who was uncared for. I don't mean it. I'm only kidding. I'm only joking. I shan't kill you. I shall not harm you. You are my mother's kin, and I am your tsao, your tsa. Your clan is Sheza, and mine is Shen. The Sheza and the Shen are Shru and Tsen. At this meeting of ours, how could there be killing or harming? The point here is that Shru and Tsen are not designating individuals within a particular uh, system. They're, they're categorical terms 
They're clearly referring to the clans as a whole. There are two other important things in this. The joking relationship. There is obligatory joking between members of such clans. You know, you have to joke, and it's usually sexual joking. The other very important thing over here is that um, uh, is the phenomenon of ritualized warfare uh, between the clans of wife givers and wife takers. And for an excellent work on this, I would refer you to um, the possibly still unpublished thesis of Philippe Ramirez on uh, ritualized warfare. Um, so uh, these groups do indeed intermarry, but, and the warfare is ritualized, but it's also real. I mean, they really do kill each other. So it's a legitimate form of killing that takes place between uh, these clans that legitimately marry into one another according to the system that's implied by this terminology. Okay, so here we have uh, the Shu and the Tsen extended, as it were, uh, as marriageable entities. So the hero of the Bonpos is presenting himself as the ideal husband for uh, the vampire. Why is that awkward? <clears throat> it's awkward because marriage patterns are now changing very rapidly in this part of the world. Um, I tried to collect a few statistics. Even when I was there doing my initial fieldwork about 30 years ago, people were still speaking about marriage with the mother's brother's daughter as being the ideal form. Now you no longer hear these two adages cited, and uh, after a few inquiries, I was able to identify just three um, uh, cross-cousin marriages within the last 13 years with um, uh, actual cross-cousins, and with classificatory, a handful more. And people are very anxious about it. They even ask me, you know, is this incest? What do you think? As well, I don't know. It's, uh, you know because it's, it's perceived as an absolute category. It's either right or it's wrong. Um, I quote Nick, uh, 1976. If the terminology changed because of changes in surrounding marriage, what is the explanation for the latter? This is one of the major theoretical questions we should leave on one side. Okay, that was a few years ago. I don't think in the present case it's that complicated. There is certainly a certain amount of revulsion on the part of populations from the South who look at this as a form of incest, and it's true that um, Southern uh, populations who don't have uh, prescriptive marriage rules are moving into the area. It's also true that the Tibetans themselves, that is to say the people north of the border and in exile, regard this as uh, a form of incest. In this remote wasteland, um, where on earth are the locals, the people from Mustang, meeting Tibetans who might uh, give them such an idea? Okay, so I've made it look all very exotic and remote. But in fact, as soon as we climb out of uh, the little gorge where the Lama's village is situated, immediately they put on their mobile phones. Yeah, because this is the only place you can get reception, is, uh, is on the ridge. So, you know, the Lama, very delighted to, uh, to phone his, uh, his friends. Uh, you know, they're texting, uh, whatever. And uh, great reception up on the ridge. Not just up on the ridge, but also in the middle of the ritual. You know, he receives, uh, uh, he receives a phone call while he's subjugating the vampire. Who is he in communication with? Um, we go to a street corner in Brooklyn, and there is most of the population from this area. Okay, um, standing around, uh, work's finished, and they're just about to go and have a drink. 
and uh, there they are. About four of them are from the village itself, others are from neighboring villages. Uh, there they are in a house watching a Tibetan film, uh, having a bit of a party. And it's not just the men, uh, the women are there as well. Women, I was just telling David, make a lot more money than the men because they don't work in construction, they work in nails, as they put it, you know, um, nail care. So they earn a lot more money. And you have this entire community, which is a substantial part of the population, living in New York. And who are their immediate neighbors? They've been there for about 10 years. They can't speak a word of English. Um, they speak their own dialect. They speak Hindi because they're employed by Hindi-speaking uh, Hindi bosses who won't employ Mexican workers because Mexicans only speak Spanish. So these people who have traded in India will work for Indian bosses. Um, so, uh, and they will have a lot to do culturally with Tibetans. And the Tibetans, uh, they have um, New Year's parties together. Um, you know, this Muslim population has more and more to do with uh, the politics of the exiled community. And, of course, uh, they're imbibing the culture of uh, the, uh, the exiled Tibetan community. And that includes things like ideas of what constitutes incest. So what does constitute incest? Uh, incest is... Um, one cannot understate how how horribly this is regarded uh, in all of Mustang. However distantly related a person may be, if that person belongs to a clan into which you cannot marry, um, the village will be struck by horrible diseases, all the cattle will die, and so forth. The term, for instance, uh, for incest is this. It's pronounced me, and dip means pollution. So it's the pollution that comes from incest. It's not just the pollution that comes from incest, it's actually a wider, or rather it is pollution that comes from incest, but in, what is incest? It's a rather wider category than simply sexual relations with uh, certain individuals. Um, and without having to argue the case, I can just go for a dictionary definition, a Tibetan-Tibetan dictionary. I'll give you a translation here. Impurity from reciprocal killing or sexual relations between members of the same clan or close relations. In other words, you can kill the people whom you marry perfectly uh, legitimately, but as soon as you kill uh, people with whom sexual relations would constitute incest, then you're committing a sin that is tantamount also to incest and damaging the community. So this, I humbly submit, is something that only the Lama knows. He is conscious that in killing the vampire, he is not merely getting rid of a pest, he is also implicitly committing incest with somebody by reproducing an obsolete form of social relations. Thank you.